Just open some sockets and download some stuff, Jared. Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about some changes in the configuration and orchestration space, specifically the purchase of Chef by Progress and the purchase of SaltStack by VMware. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Jumpstart your SRE journey with the experts at 42lines.net. So in the news recently, there was a couple of mergers and acquisitions that, that caught our eye in the configuration management and orchestration space. And in particular, um, there's a company called Progress that has a history of kind of acquiring smaller technology stack components and offering them out as a, I want to say MSP, but it's not really an MSP model. They, they're kind of a, a clearinghouse for certain um, kinds of tools enterprises like to use, especially smaller enterprises. Okay, I've never heard of this company. You haven't? Yeah, I had neither. I've never one. heard of them. Yeah, I had to do some reading. They do have some of the things on their portfolio that I've used before. I just didn't know they, that's who had them. Yeah, they, um, Kendo, they, they got picked up a couple of years ago. If anybody remembers What's Up Gold and What's Up, I think SolarWinds used to own them, or they used to be, used to be a SolarWinds product. Um, WSFTP for really old school stuff. Um, you can tell by these I names. I used that as a kid. Yeah, you can tell by these names that these are not super cutting edge, cloud native, forward looking tools. These are more, you want to make sure that somebody is maintaining and operating and providing services and support for tools that businesses are using. So I'm not super hopeful for Chef in terms of um, Progress's sort of track record for what they purchase, which is so, kind of a shame. Looking at um, what the transaction is supposedly going to be uh, in the press release did post that um, they were offering to buy chef for 220 million. That's not a lot of cash for a, an IT business. And it also doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me in another kind of vein in that AWS's ops works. Is it ops works? That is basically chef managed by AWS. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, they also have Puppet as well, but I, I, I think by default, it's uh, Chef. Yes, yeah, so you can run Chef cookbooks in your AWS environment, kind of an automated managed um, setup. If you're doing Chef in the, in the modern kind of cloud world, that's pretty much what you're doing at this point. I don't, I don't know anybody who runs Chef kind of standalone anymore because we've moved off of those tools. Yeah, Puppet was I mean, always more successful in my in my opinion in my experience uh, from using Chef. Uh, the only time I've really used Chef professionally was uh, help us migrate to something else. <laughs> yeah, I I got my start in Chef only because I was heavy in the Ruby on Rails Ruby scene. So obviously, with it, um, it was for whatever reason. Even though Puppet was in Ruby as well, Chef seemed to really be the the tool of choice in that community over puppet so um I, I got my teeth cut on it there but honestly i'd loved puppet over chef just because of the dsl well correct me if i'm wrong but in chef you could run essentially arbitrary arbitrary ruby 
And yes. within Puppet, yeah. you had to kind of follow the DSL. Yeah, and Chef allowed yes. imperative programming. You're straight up imperative programming in Ruby. And for a configuration management system, that's a little scary to me. Yeah, it's one of those wonderful double-edged swords that was re- very powerful, but that also meant you could just shoot yourself in the foot with it. Or just make something that no one else can possibly comprehend, much less maintain. I, I think that's what was favored heavily in the dev community, because you didn't have to sit there and try to learn a DSL or figure out how you could do this. You could just loop through something or, or you know accomplish what you wanted to in, in code that you already knew uh, and understood. Just open some sockets and download some stuff, Jared. <laughs> Well, yeah, cause, cause with Puppet, with the DSL, at least everything you did is idempotent. So when you're trying to validate that you know the permissions on a, a thing are done correctly or whatever, it was it was easy. But it was much harder to use as an orchestration tool, which is the other bit of news that we that got us going on this episode, which is that Salt is now moving into the VMware umbrella or Salt Stack. I'm not sure. Salt of, Stack, yes, yeah. And that makes a little bit more sense to me in terms of what VMware does, but both of these changes kind of mark a a shift in the widespread public adoption of configuration management and standalone orchestration outside of cloud environments, and that they're starting to go away for a lot of places, or they're they're no longer leading the the technological charge. And SaltStack is really cool. Um, SaltStack came out about the same time Ansible did. Uh, it's can easily be confused with Ansible. It's a Python-based uh, system. You configure it with YAML stuff. Um, so they look a lot alike from 10,000 feet away. But SaltStack had this really cool design where essentially it used a, a message bus. So you set up a broker and could issue commands to the broker, and anything you could do with a modern message bus, um, you could do with that infrastructure. So if you if you needed to command and control a network that was behind multi-VPCs that had multiple um, security gates and firewalls, you could set up SALT to integrate with that in really neat and interesting ways. Versus Ansible, where you basically have to find a blessed host that you can run Ansible from. Um, so they had some really cool features, and I think they're a really strong competitor um, to Ansible, which is owned by Red Hat, by the way. Yes, yeah, so I'm wondering if these companies sensed a change in the, in the industry and were concerned about the, the future development cycle of these, of these products and, and figured... Uh, one, now is probably a good time to buy into them, and two, just a kind of self-preservation. Like, I, I don't know if VMware is a, is a heavy salt stack shop, but uh, I guess they had to have some investment there to be even interested in buying them. Well, you think about VMware's business model, they're still working with large enterprises to do... I apologize for my wristwatch. Um, so if you think about their, the business model a little bit, VMware is still selling... Virtual, virtual machine solutions to large enterprises so you can do hypervisors with live failover of VMs between hosts and whatever. And one of the pieces of that stack is a successful and competent orchestration engine to make sure that the workloads that, that run kind of above that layer are able to be controlled. And so I can see that fitting into their product strategy a little bit better. I think VMware is being super strategic with some of their purchases because they know that 
VMware as as a VM provider, um, you know, it's like welcome to the '90s. That technology isn't unique and super valuable anymore. Well, they're also selling into such large enterprises that they're they're move slowly with change. So they need if they're already using this, they need it and they need it long term, and it needs to be supported and all those. So you know, picking up more of the the stack to keep it alive and keep revenue running makes sense. Yeah, and even if it isn't a direct play for revenue, keeping the stack available to their customers and keeping it supported and keeping it maintained makes their business model viable longer. Exactly. I thought they were really uh, forward-looking when VMware acquired Wavefront, which is essentially a metrics and telemetry startup, and they're a really interesting one. I like them a lot. Um, but I, I think their strategic vision was really um, looking forward about how to make a, how to make that big data play and be able to integrate with some of these enterprises, these large enterprises they work with and have the tools available to move them into today's big data world. And all of this makes me wonder a little bit about the long-term direction that configuration management and orchestration are going. We had um, what CloudTruth, Greg Arnett on a while ago as, a, as an episode guest to talk about their approach to doing configuration management for the cloud. And it was very Git heavy. It was very focused on scanning through the Git infrastructure and making sure that when things get checked in, that you have clean commits and you have you know a source of truth that you know where things are defined and how those things, those, those bits piece together. Because that's well outside of what things like Puppet or Chef can really do. And I really see that a lot of the pieces of configuration management and orchestration in terms of the actual tools are moving into things like Kubernetes or Amazon's CloudFront, whatever this version is called. It's definitely been superseded by the whole Docker ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I I haven't touched a Puppet Manifest in a long time at this point. It's definitely been more Terraform than anything else. Yeah, you use Terraform or you just use Helm or something to push your containers out. It's not, you know, what goes in them is outside of that. They are, they're already built when you get a hold of them. It's, you know, developers build their own and, well, it sinks or swim based on the um, CI/CD pipeline saying it worked or not, and then it gets deployed, and you just there's not much configuration done anymore. Yeah, and as much as I don't like that pattern necessarily, it doesn't always fit. Having the configuration baked into the container means that you know, based on what the container is, what its role is. So if you had say four different Elasticsearch environments, you have one for logging, you have one for application search, you have one for you know a backend for some other data system for doing caching you build the configurations for those different systems differently and you have different images for each of the systems. You don't necessarily share across them because you don't want to say, oh, when I upgrade this one, I have to upgrade the other ones. So the kind of the purpose of Puppet and those kinds of tools is starting to wane in the, again, and I hate I hate to use this phrase, but in kind of the forward looking or the, the cutting edge stuff because people are moving into a different model. I want to, suss this apart a bit more because frankly this is a big pet peeve of mine Uh, there are an awful lot of folks out there that i think rightly believe that 
configuration for your application should be well integrated into that Docker image. And for a lot of things, for a custom or for normal software engineering that we do to push out a product where we, you know, run run a, a new CI CD um, job and push that new image out into production. And that new image slowly AB replaces the old image. Uh, that works really well having configuration built into that image and, you know, a couple knobs that you can uh, tune if you have to. But there's another class of, of applications that's, that tilt a little bit more toward the infrastructure side of the space, like your monitoring system, your database system, uh, Elastic that maintains state, load balancing, and these tools where you really want the ability to update the configuration, instruct the tool to reload, but not blow away its Kubernetes pod and completely restart. I've been working with HAProxy a lot uh, recently, and definitely if you want to ensure that every single HTTP request comes in and gets routed, you don't want to blow away your your HAProxy container and replace it. You just want it to get it to reload the existing configuration. And so I, I definitely think there are cases where both of those styles are really, really super important to work together. Absolutely. But uh, there I've ranted, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> I, I agree with you and puppet doesn't help you in either of those cases that or it, it can help you. Let me walk that back, but it isn't required now. Uh, Kubernetes supports those models. Uh, and, um, then you don't need Puppet. So then all you need is something like Terraform to set up Kubernetes for you, and then you're done. And Puppet was never designed to work in that containerized namespace, really. It can. Well, I would also argue with you, Jack, a little bit that you're defining, you're describing two different problems as configuration. And the first is like the MyCNF file for MySQL or your, your LDAP um the slap configuration file itself that controls the number of threads and how much memory and what version of the daemon you're running or, you know, the, the base parameters you're passing in the Elasticsearch YAML file that control kind of the fundamentals of how the process works. And that is separate from things like the template you apply or the schema you apply to your database or to your document store or to HAProxy. And I would argue that second part, the, the template, the, the rules for HAProxy, that's not configuration, that's content. That, that is part of your dynamically delivered, stateful, must be back somewhere else. And that does not belong in the container. That belongs in a persistent document store somewhere else. And even that can't be controlled by Puppet easily because this is more of a etcd or some other kind of backend that, that, that feeds the, that, that part of the content out to the application. Yeah, I will totally agree that configuration and content get really close and overlap a lot. Well, here's an example then. Uh, the Prometheus.yaml file to, that configs Prometheus. You know, you uh, it would be great to have that baked into the image in case something happens, but you don't necessarily want to have to whenever you update your, your config uh, to add a new target, let's say, uh, or add a new job. You don't want to bake a whole new image, roll that through when P Prometheus already supports hot reloading. 
Well, and I would argue that, that configuration file isn't a config file. That is content. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Or maybe it's just your point of view, which, you know, it, what part of the stack are you maintaining to view it as content versus configuration? Right. I remember having the discussion of how to control Prometheus configuration and, you know, going back and forth between folks at a client. And, you know, I'm sitting there asking them, you know, if, if you get a page at 3 a.m. and it's erroneous or a, a small adjustment can fix it and it's an easy configuration thing, do you want to be able just to upload the new configuration and fix it? Or do you want to completely respawn your Prometheus, your monitoring process, and perhaps, you know, you possibly have a large hole in your monitoring data? So to keep this on the configuration management um, aspect, I think part of the way I would, part of my rubric for deciding which side of the, the divide you're on is all of these services, you're running more than one instance of them for either fault tolerance or high availability or a cluster or whatever it is. The pieces that need to be shared between those and when you bring the instance up needs to use whatever the current setting for the rest of the environment is, that's content. The number of threads this particular instance gets, that's configuration. And that's kind of my, that's, it, it isn't perfect. I know there are places where you have to set it the same, otherwise you have problems and it kind of blurs that line. But to me, that generally is that that demarcation point. Okay. Well, I, I like that. That That's a good way to, to describe yeah. it, though. I mean, I agree. There is a difference there, and I, and a lot of people don't see why we why we pick at these little subtleties of, of the differences between, between how you want to force these configuration changes to happen. I always go by the, how, how much sleep am I going to lose when it's dorked in the middle of the night and I have to fix it? How easy is it going to be to fix? Well, also, there's nothing that says you can't have the configuration file in your Docker container read out of, say, your Kubernetes environment variables. So you can adjust the variable, and then as you delete pods, it picks up the new variable you've set. And that way, you don't have to go bake a new container. You can set it at runtime. But if you're doing, say, on delete or something, so as you're popping your containers, as you're deleting them and having them come back up, they are rolling out the new value gracefully that way. And that is how you get around some of that that hard boundary of, I don't want to keep on adjusting the amount of memory in the configuration file because, you know, whatever. But it's also not really content. And again, like I said, a lot of these things are kind of blurry. There's not a really good or simple way to say it is this or it is that. But there's there's tools available to you. And unfortunately for a lot of the, the players in the space, there isn't so much of a need anymore for these elaborate like puppet runs that I remember in a, in one of the complicated environments I was dealing with, the puppet runs took 20 minutes per host and that's forever. Well, I think in terms of what, you know, what started this conversation and the, the acquisitions, there's still a need for them. They're still useful, but there's not as much of a need. And that's what drives everything is, you know, supply and demand. There's still some demand. But there's not a huge demand, which means they're less valuable and therefore they become easier to acquire and move around. Well, yeah, I mean, pre, pre-cloud pre uh, configuration management was really big. And then with the with cloud, you had something that kind of bridged that gap, gap cloud init and other tools like Terraform popped up. Uh, and then orchestration is very big. And now with 
uh, Kubernetes coming on the stage and, and being so present, you you start repl- even replacing that with uh, the control plane of Kubernetes, you know, kubectl and stuff like that, where you it replaces uh, Ansible or, or your other orchestration tool, and then it you're using Ansible less and less, just like uh, configuration management. Yeah, yeah, and, and a lot of these the new value isn't driven from the simply from the fact that people want to do oh I want to do the new shiny cool thing. It comes from the the leverage you get out of the new technology and what it helps your business do. Like VMware rose to prominence way back in the day because they said, hang on, we have all of this physical server hardware that is underutilized because people are only running one application per host if they can avoid you know, running packing lots of stuff in. So let's let's redesign things and consolidate all of that unused space. And so they made a huge amount of money because they were providing new talent and new technology and new value that people flocked to rightfully so. And then very shortly thereafter, we started moving into, oh, well, if we can virtualize this, we can virtualize lots of other things. And AWS came up and all these other tools started rising out of the out of the stack. And while VMware is still relevant or still useful if you have on-prem, if you don't have on-prem stuff anymore, it's not something you really care about. And it's, it's not because there's anything wrong with it. It's because our needs have moved along. There's now more value to be derived from the fact that you can pay Amazon, you know, by the, by the hour or by the minute to bring up more infrastructure so you don't have to go buy it and provision it and install it and all the other crap. Ah, uh, per socket licensing, my favorite licensing model. Well, they, VMware knew where the money was and they knew that people were going to be saving money by not buying hardware and they could, that was money on the table so they could pick some of that up and they did. And I, I give them full credit for knowing what to reach for. Yeah, I think they've operated a very strategic shop really since the very beginning they wanted a pretty penny for live migration but you know i, I was just about <laughs> to say and then when you wanted some features like live migration you <laughs> you just doubled it yeah so the other acquisition or the other thing that happened recently is not really an acquisition um i think jack you put this into the show notes that datadog is now azure's kind of default visibility tool yes it was this past week that Datadog and Microsoft uh, released details or the intention to enter into a partnership so that Datadog would be their their default built-in uh, visibility, observability stack uh, for Azure. And frankly, I think Datadog fits that model really, really well. And it's yeah. not an acquisition. Um Datadog has been doing great financially of late. They're a $30 billion company. Wow. Um, But Datadog's model and how they operate, I think, fits in really well with what Azure is trying to do. And and frankly, any cloud sort of of that that same nature. Um, So I think that's a really interesting um, partnership. I think Datadog will see a lot of cash for that. I will probably be able to give you guys firsthand uh, information on that as my new work uh, runs a chunk of its stuff in Azure, and one of the tasks I've been given is monitoring a metrics to get a handle on what we're actually doing. So I will be looking at it. I look forward to hearing how that integration, how seamless it is. One of one of Datadog's strengths has always been how easy it is for a developer to not have to go hire 
a visibility person, but to just start throwing data into StatsD or Graphite. You just or, throw StatsD data over the bridge and yeah. And Datadog yeah. picks it up and makes it into usable data. This this really reminded me of Heroku and their add-ons model. Um and why I think this partnership's pretty good because this means that uh Azure doesn't have to go out and build a metrics monitoring tool. They don't have to try and uh you know spend a lot of time on this. They could just they could just work with Datadog. Datadog in turn gets to have that advertising, but also gets to get all these clients they may not ha- would have otherwise. Uh and so I agree. I think it's a great I think it's a great thing for them to do. Um full disclosure, I've never used either one, so I don't really know <laughs> how well they work, but I've used Datadog a little bit. They're not my favorite uh, option in that space, but they're really big and really popular for really good reasons. Uh, they're, you know, they're a solid contender as far as you need something to hit the ground and running with. You're you're just starting a startup or just starting a new infrastructure. Datadog fits that bill really, really well. Yeah, they're really phenomenal for a small shop that is trying to get a sense of what their metrics and visibility look like without building out a stack themselves because they haven't either gotten that big yet or they don't need the precision. They just need sort of a general idea of these things. It's great for that. Much bigger than that, as you start to grow, the costs don't scale terribly well and you start to run into some deficiencies about how like StatsD works in general. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell a, a, a seasoned company to go all in on Datadog, but it's definitely something that you want to look at as as part of your strategy. I really wonder if this partnership is going to change Datadog's pricing model. Because if mm-hmm. they were forced more into, you know, pay for what you use instead of pay per host, um, I think Datadog would be a much more compelling story. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Jumpstart your SRE journey today with the experts at 42lines.net. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brenda Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. You know, I still have a Habitat shirt somewhere.